Let's pray. Heavenly Father, teach us to stand on our tippy toes to see what you see. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there are moments, uh, even when we're standing on our tippy toes, that we just aren't tall enough to see what we need to see. I mentioned last week there are times when more than anything we need to know that home really is just around the corner or that our pain is going to end or the one that we are been praying for is going to be healed or we're going to finally understand. Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. He was. He was a big crybaby, but he had a pretty good reason. How would you like it if God told you, now your job is to preach to the world about sin and grace, but no one is going to listen to you. And when you respond, why do I bother then? And God says, look, that's the kind of God I am. Even if they aren't going to listen, I want them to know that I love them. And it wasn't just that they didn't listen to Jeremiah's sermons. I mean, pastors kind of get used to that. These people went out of their way to do the total opposite of anything that God said. Some of them even took after their neighbor's religion, started sacrificing children. Jeremiah grabbed some big clay pots, you know, the kind that they used to store water in, and he gathered all the people together, and he took these big pots, and he smashed them into the ground. And he said, unless you stop this right now, God is going to do this to you. I should mention that Jeremiah and the Incredible Hulk have something in common. Their favorite word is smash. Jeremiah uses it more than all the other writers in the Bible. In today's lesson, Jeremiah is angry at God. He goes so far as to say, well, God, you deceived me. God told him no one would listen, but Jeremiah kept hoping anyone, I mean, literally just anyone would finally get it. And God didn't get angry at Jeremiah for saying what he said because he knew the job that he'd given Jeremiah was more than anybody should have to handle. Jeremiah wasn't deceived. He just was hoping that God was wrong because his heart bled for these individuals. One of my favorite verses from Jeremiah is in the 31st chapter. Jeremiah is standing on a soapbox and leaning forward on his tippy toes. He says, in those days, it will never be said again that the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. I like the living Bible trend, uh, paraphrase. It says, the parents eat sour apples and the children get a stomach ache. It was those brief and far-off visions of a day that he would not live long enough to see, but the children of the children of the children of the children would that kept Jeremiah preaching because he knew. He knew just for a glimpse, an instant, that God was faithful. One day God entered Jeremiah's head and told him the Babylonians were going to come and conquer Israel and they were going to tear the temple down and run off with all the expensive jewelry and the sacred stuff. Jeremiah went and told the people what God said, giving him one more chance to repent, to fall into the arms of a loving and forgiving God. Well, the people were so angry that they threw Jeremiah into the nearest well, thinking that would silence him forever, except the well was mostly dry, and Jeremiah sank up to his armpits in mud and had to wait until Ebed-Melech, an Ethiopian eunuch, came and rescued him. It wasn't long before the Babylonians did show up, though, and just like God told Jeremiah and Jeremiah told the people, they conquered Israel, destroyed the temple, and generally made a mess of things. Now the people decided to run away, scatter to the ends of the earth, but Jeremiah told them they needed to stay right where they were at. They might be stubborn, sinful, lost, wandering, and more than a handful. 
but they were still God's people. And they needed to stick around because eventually God would kick the Babylonians out and he would restore the land and rebuild the temple and get ready for the coming Messiah. And that was something that they didn't want to miss. No surprise, the people didn't listen to Jeremiah and they took off for Egypt. But in a strange but not surprising twist, they took Jeremiah the prophet along with them. Kind of like, you know, one of those quibbling hula dolls that you put on your dashboard. The people never listened to Jeremiah. They tried to silence him every chance they got, but they understood that he really was the prophet of God. So maybe he would bring them some good luck, or maybe at least God wouldn't destroy them as long as he was with them. Last words of Jeremiah in his book are actually not against Israel, but against Babylon. He's old, but his wit and sarcasm remained. He enlists somebody in the same way that God enlisted him. The 51st chapter reads, Jeremiah told Saraiah, When you get to Babylon, see that you read all these words aloud. You must say, Lord, you have threatened to cut off this place so that no one will live in it, man or beast. Indeed, it will remain desolate forever. When you have finished reading this scroll, tie a stone around it, throw it into the middle of the Euphrates River. Then say, in the same way, Babylon will sink and never rise again because of the disaster I am bringing on her. They will grow weary. Bible then says, the words of Jeremiah end here. Except, there's a whole other chapter about the history of God's wayward people, which sets everything up for a couple of guys named Nehemiah and Ezra, and Jerusalem getting rebuilt, and the new temple getting ready for the Messiah, just as God promised and Jeremiah hoped for. So why did I give you a history lesson of Jeremiah the prophet? Well, maybe it's because of what Jesus said to you and to me in today's gospel lesson. After 35 years as a pastor, I have come to see evangelism as witnessing as something very, very different than when I was a kid and even when I was at the seminary. You see, if you listen carefully to Jesus, he says, whoever acknowledges me before men, and we can broaden that to all humanity, he says, I will acknowledge them before my Father in heaven. So what do you think Jesus means when he says, acknowledges me? A social media blitz? Standing on a street corner with a sign that says, turn or burn? How about going door to door, hanging pamphlets there? Two to three times a year, I get a letter from a man in New Mexico. To the best of my knowledge, I've never met him. It's four to six pages, talking all about Jesus and the church. The envelope is hand-addressed, often takes two stamps because of the number of pages inside. A few weeks ago, I was with a pastor from Wyoming. We were talking about various things, and I said, you know, it's kind of crazy, but a couple of times a year, I get a letter from this guy in New Mexico. And the pastor turns to me and says, I get the same letter. And several of the other pastors in the group said, yeah, we remember getting that letter. Imagine what it takes, handwriting and addressing those letters, buying all those stamps. We're not even sure he's Lutheran. Where did he get our addresses? Why us? Who else does he send them to? See, I may never meet him, and I don't always agree with everything he writes, but I read the letter because I know it comes from his heart. And he is trying to do everything he can to acknowledge Jesus. I'm not nearly as steadfast as that. I tend to hold to Matthew chapter 10, where Jesus says, and whoever gives just a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he's a disciple. Yes, he cups of cold water, I can manage. So next Sunday is Nancy and I's 40th anniversary. Like Jeremiah, it's hard to believe somebody has been able to put up with me for that long.
It probably doesn't come as a surprise, but even at our wedding, there was controversy. Yeah, I seem to create it wherever I go. So the pastor of Nancy's church, where the ceremony was taking place, didn't like the, my pastor, who was doing the ceremony. And there was all this hoo-hoo. Now, the reason I bring this up is we actually have two wedding sermons. The official one that was preached at the service that everybody got to hear, and the snarky one that was written, uh, well, yeah, in response to the controversy and only given to a select few of us. The snarky sermon was based on the text, you bring the brats and I'll bring the beer, and was loosely based on Mark chapter 6, which was the gospel for that Sunday in which Jesus says, if any place does not welcome you and people refuse to listen to you, then leave there. Shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. That's the alien side of evangelism. You know, bringing a soul out of darkness and into the light of God's love is 100% the job of the Holy Spirit. And there's a long list of Bible verses to back this up. We are at best a supporting role. The mouth, the hands, the feet, the ears that God uses to get this message to that soul. We're like the post office, FedEx or UPS. It's just our job to deliver, not anything else. Like the prophet Jeremiah, especially in today's world, the likelihood of someone accepting our message is dim. Still, Jesus says we have to deliver it. Even if the world is not interested, God still wants them to know that he loves them. They may show us the door or throw us into the nearest well, and we'll have to shake off the dust or the mud off our feet when we leave, but they will know that God loves them. And our prayer is that someday that God will be able to get through their thick heads and their thick souls. Maybe this is why the story of the prodigal son, which, as you know, I consider more the prodigal father, is not just a tearjerker from beginning to end, but also one we need to hear. Because we all have a prodigal someone in our life. And we wait at the window. Or maybe we watch our ring doorbell camera, hoping to catch a glimpse of their face as they walk up the sidewalk and come home. If you're like me in calmer moments, like here in worship or sitting on an airplane for eight hours or in one of those endless meetings where you really don't need to pay attention because it really doesn't have anything to do with you, the perfect words come together into a plan, the right ambiance. You know exactly what you need to say to your neighbor, to your prodigal, to your workmate, or, or maybe the lady that stands behind you every morning when you're getting your coffee. You have it all mapped out. But no plan survives first contact. And that's the real problem. It's so easy when we're wherever we are when we're not with them. But when we're standing there face to face, suddenly everything just gets so hard. And that's the whole what I tell you in the dark, speak in the light, what you hear in a whisper, proclaim on the housetops. I mean, do I really have to stand on my roof and, and, and preach? Because I'm pretty sure my HOA has rules against that. I mean, they won't even let me keep my Christmas lights up until Epiphany. Where's the line I don't need to cross? How far do I need to go? How much trouble should I cause? What does Jesus actually expect? I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one who needs God to lift him up from time to time so I can see beyond myself and catch a glimpse of why I need to find a way to share the love of Jesus with those around me. All the anger and violence raging on social media, the news, movies, TV. The homeless camped out on the sidewalks at the public library here in Hawaii and even in the governor's backyard. The war raging in my long ago homeland as well as a dozen other countries. The pain 
of over 1 million dead from COVID, 1.8 million from cancer, 135,000 from suicide, 130,000 from gunshot wounds, some of which are also, by the way, up in the suicide category. All of that, by the way, those numbers, just in the U.S., and just in the last three years. People have decided to dull the pain of life by buying homes, cars, and going on revenge travel, finding the latest drug, or simply ensconcing themselves and living and working from home and never going out, just pulling deeper and deeper into themselves. In Exodus 19, Moses went up on a mountain to talk to God, and it says the Holy Spirit was poured out, not just on Moses, but on all the leaders a revival broke out. The verse even noted that spirit came on two of the leaders who played hooky and had stayed back in the camp. Joshua, being a good assistant, got nervous because only the pastor should be holy. Only the pastor should have the Holy Spirit. And so he turns to Moses and says, stop all this nonsense. And Moses turns and looks at Joshua and says, are you jealous for my sake? If only God's spirit would be poured out on all the people. Well, you know what your baptism? That's exactly what happened. God's Spirit came upon you, and this Spirit was given so you could give out cup, cold cups of water or maybe stand on your rooftop and preach. Check with your HOA rules first. Visit a friend in the hospital. Be a listening ear to somebody. Or sometimes, in fact, all the time, just be you. Believers who are forgiven behave differently than a world trying to escape their shame and guilt. You are filled with the Holy Spirit so that first you can receive God's love each and every day with the first lights of, you know, the morning sun. And then that same love and forgiveness holds you tight during the darkness of the night. And second, so that you can live in such a way the love of God shines through all your cracks and gaps and wounds so that the world sees and understands that God didn't expect you to be perfect and he doesn't expect them to be perfect. He just wants him to be open to his hope and his love and his forgiveness. We are a church that exists to remind a struggling world that God's first and last words to them is love. And when we say church, by the way, we don't mean Sunday morning. We're not talking about a denomination or anything organized. You, me, wherever we are, whatever we're doing, we are the church. For so many people, believing in a God who loves them is a lot more difficult than just believing in God. God's angry at them or disappointed with them or expects too much of them. That's the kind of God they have no problem believing in. The truth is they have problems telling the difference between the church and God. See, one is holy all the time and the other is holy once in a while. They should be able to tell the difference. They can't. So back to the 31st chapter of Jeremiah where he's standing on his soapbox and leaning forward on his tippy toes where God gives him a glimpse of the now and not yet. And God says to him, I will put my teaching within them, and I'm going to write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. No longer will one neighbor have to teach his neighbor or his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest. That was enough for Jeremiah to get back to work. Because even if he didn't see the results, God said that they were there, and, well, that was enough because he knew he could trust God. God put you here as his unique and unreproducible miracle. And he put someone or a bunch of someones in your life because he knew that they needed to hear about his love. And he knew that you were just the person to do it. And all you got to do is deliver the package. 
Now, if you want to go door to door or stand on the roof and preach or create a social media blitz or stand on the corner with a sign, go for it. But in truth, all you really knew, really need to do is just be you. Be a friend, a parent, a child, a neighbor, the guy in line of somebody else in line. Let God's holy love leak out of you. And by the way, if you begin to wonder if it's all worth it because you just don't see anything happening, ask God to boost you up and lean forward on your tippy toes to catch a glimpse of that day when everything, and I mean everything's going to be okay, and we're going to be home forever. Yeah. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.